The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 17. As many of you know, I am not going through any particular series on Wednesday nights and and between series on Sundays, and so uh, we might be piecing together a few uh, just various standalone sermons and texts. And uh, while I didn't certainly plan it this way, This evening's sermon will be, according to Psalm 141, oil for your head. So (laughs) take it for what it's worth. Luke chapter 17. We're going to read from verse 1 through verse 10. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who is a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Well, this is indeed God's word. You might wonder, I don't know what you wonder after a retext like that, but you might wonder, you had the whole Bible to pick from. Everything was available to you and you picked you picked that one. How did you land on that one? Well, uh, there is a, there's an answer. I don't know if it would be a satisfactory answer, but there's an answer to it. Uh, as we're gearing up for our uh, celebration here as a church family, and while it's, um, it, it's, it's been an interesting buildup, right? There's lots of different emotions and thoughts that go into celebrating God's goodness. And uh, one of the things that I've been working on that you'll hopefully see the fruits of is uh, some kind of a video presentation, and so I've got the chance to go through uh, the the photo albums of the church. And it, it's it, there's an oddness to f- like turning through decades of the church history that, that I wasn't I wasn't here for. Some things were astonishing. Many of you were really young. Some things were really astonishing. Steve never had hair. And, and but but others were just quite normal, right? Like you see, you see photos of the Strackens then, and, and they're still here today. And so there's these new things, and there's faces that I'd never recognize because there's saints that have moved on. And as I've thought through uh, the history, both of the church, and then just 
even the, the little bit that, that my family has been here, one of the things that I've thought of is as we serve God together as a church family, how do we view that service? How do we look back over three decades or even more than that, if you've been walking with the Lord, you know, more than a longer time from, than that, how do you look at your own Christian life? And, and this text kept bubbling to the surface of my heart. That at the end of the day, at the end of eternity, at the end of life, what is there that we could say beyond, I at most did what my master said? I can't even say that with a full clear conscience, right? You could say I did some of it. But, but, but like that's that disposition that, that I personally want to have. And it's the disposition I want every saint in our church to have. While I don't want to jump ahead on the exposition tonight, that, that should be the way that we think of a life well spent. I'm a slave, and I tried to do what my master said. Nothing more. Like that's, that's how I want my life summarized and then quickly forgotten. And that's how I want your life summarized as you think through your faithfulness in the church. And so I gravitated to that text and was looking around in the context of it and, and uh, read something from one of my favorite authors, Dale Ralph Davis. And he actually uh, included, all the way back to verse 1, I was just going to do 7 through 10, but he ties in all the way back to uh, verse one, and one of the things that Del Raff Davis said that caught my eye is there's times where when we're reading the, the, the sayings of Jesus, and maybe you've had this experience too, you read what Jesus is saying, you read a couple of them stacked up, and you think to yourself, what on earth did any of this have to do with the other parts and pieces? At times you're going, man, I mean, is, what were his thoughts scattered? Are we missing like transitional statements or scenes that were, I mean, there's times where you would read verse one and two and go, okay, I understand that. And then I have no idea how three and four fit in. And then no idea how five and six fit in. And then certainly no idea how seven through 10 fits in. If that's been your experience, you are among good friends and company. And yet I want to argue that I think all four of these sayings of the Lord, if we could kind of cluster them like that, all strike at the, the heart of what it means to be involved in, in the church. And I, and I want to hold back that, that answer. They, I think there is a unifying theme and topic to it, but I want to hold it back and let's, let's unfold it inductively. Deductively would be, I would tell you right up front, here's the thing, and let's see it expel or spelled out. I actually want to hold it back a little bit, look at each of these four statements, and then maybe step back at the end and say, now what did they all four have in common? So uh, the first of them, verses one through two, we want to consider for the importance of church life among one another be careful of the influence you have on one another. Be careful of the influence that you have on one another. Verse 1 opens up the Lord addressing his disciples. And while it may have had a very immediate context to Jesus with those 12 in that particular place, uh, this is no less important or applicable to you today. Jesus still says in his word, 
to his disciples this very thing. And it should fall on our ears with the same amount of seriousness and authority. It's not like we're eavesdropping on a conversation like, oh, I'm glad Jesus is telling Peter, you know, hey, do this. Like, no, Jesus says to you here in this cow field in the middle of Nevada tonight, these very words, temptations are sure to come. Now, if you've spent any time at all in the church of Jesus Christ and seeking to follow Christ faithfully, you know the, the sober reality to which that speaks, don't you? You know that of the few certain things, like there, there are some things that are uncertain in, in this life. There are other things that are really certain. Taxes, want them or not, you can count on them. They're going to they're going to show up. Uncle Sam will put his hand in your wallet. Well, this is a happy place. Let's not talk about that. So there are some things that are just dependable. They shouldn't surprise us. They shouldn't catch us off guard. They shouldn't knock us back on our heels in life. And among those things, actually, it would have to do with temptations. Don't be surprised. When temptations come in this life, don't be shocked. Like, oh, I, I gave my life to Christ. I, I, I'm following the Lord. I'm so stunned that the enemy continued to attack. Don't be. You live in an active war zone. And the fight didn't stop when you became a Christian. It began. We were at great peace with the world when we were outside of Christ. And now that we are in Christ, we now, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have wondrous peace with God and are at active war with the world. Oh, believer, don't be surprised when temptation comes. The word that Jesus actually uses is it is impossible for temptation not to come. It's impossible. If you're going to, if you draw breath and have blood in your veins and you live in this world as a Christian, as a disciple, temptations come. Don't be shocked. Don't be stunned. Don't be naive. Also, don't be like weirdly, oddly cynical about it, but just, just have open eyes and realize temptations come. And then tagging right along with it, well, before we move on to that, the word he uses, it's an odd word for a temptation. He uses the word a scandalon. You can even hear an English word that we would get from it, something being a scandal or scandalous. Things that cause you to be scandalized are sure to come. It would be impossible, Christ said, for them not to. Then turning from that, or uh, in shifting kind of gears, you could say, he says, but woe to the one through whom they come. An odd uh, hitching of two uh, just really profound ideas. Uh, It's impossible for temptations not to come, And yet there's a responsibility that you uh, not be the source from which they come. And surfacing to the, to the top isn't as, or so much directly, the idea that temptations come and that we'll wrestle with them. The emphasis that Christ is putting is 
watch out for your role with others. So he's already invoking community life here. Watch out on your influence on other people. Don't try to uh, slough off responsibility by saying like, well, I mean, Jesus said it's impossible for them not to come. I'm just part of the inevitability of it. Like, no, they happen. Be very watchful, Christian, that they don't happen through you. You might think to yourself, okay, I... That, that doesn't, that like those cookies are not on the top shelf. That seems really accessible, right? But the word that Jesus uses is one that you should recognize. Even from, well, it's not this gospel, but it's in Matthew's gospel. Uh, it's one of Jesus's favorite words. Whoa. He's not talking about directives that you give to a horse. What he's talking about is actually this word that he aimed in, I think it's Matthew 23, seven different times at a group that we really don't want to be identified with. He has seven woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Do you remember the next word? Hypocrites. Oh, be very careful when Jesus starts using that word and make sure that we don't fit the category he's talking about. The word that Jesus uses here means not just consigned unto damnation, that's, that's definitely there, but, the, but there's another element to it. It, it means uh, distress or ruin lies ahead. It's like a big flashing uh, light, or I don't know if you've ever seen it, we probably see it up at the lake, where there's these signs where you see a swervy road, a car, and then a rock falling on top of the car. Is, I mean, it's on the sign. And what do we do? We just smile and drive on right through it. Like, well, okay, don't, don't do that to the word woe. Pump the brakes and go, you know, I don't know if I want to go down here. I don't think I want to proceed in that direction, well, that would be the right way that we should view it. We have, now whether we, we know it or not, and we're already going to be hinting at uh, the, the main thing to which Jesus is driving, you have an influence on other people. You do. You might be sitting here and be like, I, I think you overestimate me. No one would pay attention to me and no one would listen. Well, I mean, you may not be far off of wrong, but we all influence others in our life. Think of, uh, think of the influence other people have had on you. Well, you're that for someone else. Think of the way your parents have impacted you. That's a pretty, one of the most powerful impacts of, or uh, influences in all your life is your parents. Well, if you're a parent here tonight, you have that impact on your children. If you are a grandparent, you have an impact on your grandchildren. If you're a sibling, you have an impact on your siblings. If you're a church member, you have an impact on your church members. If you're a kid in this church, you have impacts on other kids. We all impact and influence those who are around us. And what we ought to do is take a step back in love and concern for the life of those around us and say, what sort of impact am I having? Parents or grandparents, do not be the source through which temptation comes to your, your children. 
It's why Paul says fathers don't exasperate your kids. It's actually, this is exactly what he's pointing to. Grandparents can have it on the other side where they spoil them, but that's a different topic for a different day. I wonder where some of that spoiling was when I was a kid, but it's neither here nor there. Uh, Spouses. This is a huge one. Don't be the source to which temptation comes. Or children to parents, or children to friends, or we, we all actually find ourselves described here. And now, uh, what is the repercussions of this? Be, don't be the one through whom temptation comes. And then Jesus says, you know what? It would just be better overall if this didn't happen. Well, that's not exactly what he says. He says it would be better. Now, those who say like, man, Jesus was just a nice teacher. I want to ask him, really? Did you, have you read anything that he wrote? Because he says some stuff that makes... Well, everyone who reads it, uncomfortable. And so if you're like, man, he was like Confucius or any of the great Scott. Like, no, he says some stuff. Verse two is one of the things that he says. It'd be better if a big rock was tied around your neck and you were chucked into a body of water. And like, you're not going to read them like, wow, meek and mild, Jesus. The stone that he's describing is probably a stone that would be so large. It's not the small little one where it'd be like, okay, this is uncomfortable. Let me, like, no, this is one that that, uh, you would need a donkey or a mule to turn the radius on. This would be one of the stones that would be used, uh, say, uh, where after Samson had his eyes put out and they made him rotate the bar that turned the rock. It's a rock like that. Like, there's no swimmer that's going to succeed at staying uh, well above the water in this case. The point is that it would be better to die a horrible death than, have, than be that influence in someone's life. Really sobering. And if we were to consider the, the, the Jewish people back then were not a seafaring people. Uh, you don't need to read the gospels very long to realize like, even though these guys were fishermen, they were not really good at what they did. Um, for, for them, for a Jew, drowning was conceived of as one of the worst ways or the worst way to die. You don't got to be a Jew to think that. I think that drowning is like a terrible way to go. Um, and, and so it, it's, that's the main point is that it would be better to suffer a disastrous end than to be the source through which sin comes than to cause a little one to stumble. Delraf Davis said, Jesus is saying it'd be better for a certain fellow to meet with a certain cruel death before he would be the means of destroying the faith of a disciple of Jesus. That would be preferable to meeting the judgment of God for such a weakness. The word that Jesus is using here isn't kind of that those day-to-day um, stumblings or trippings or sins that, that occur. He's, he's mainly talking about a course of action that so impacts someone that it could compromise their faith. Be very careful. And sometimes, we're, well, oftentimes, and again, the psalm that I picked tonight, even though I didn't plan it this way, uh, really is uh, applicable. Set a guard over my, my mouth. Isn't that the primary way? I mean, like, th- this thing does a lot of work with regards to tripping people up. If you talk to people who uh, were at one point identifying as a Christian and then later aren't, it often is 
things said to them um, that that led them down that road. Really, a really so. And, and Jesus like moves on. He ends with that, like, yeah, better to drown to death than to be that. And then like moves on, just goes to the next thing. And we're meant to, I think, sit under the weight of the or just the, the heaviness of that statement. Be very careful your influence on other people. Be really careful, especially, not, uh, not exclusively, but especially on those who are younger in the faith. Be really careful. You're not, and that's not like licensed, like, so I can say whatever I want to older people in the faith. Like, no, that's not what it is. Be careful with those who are young in the faith and tender of conscience. Be, be wise. Be cautious. Be quick to encourage and to build up and to point to truth rather than so many of the other ways we handle ourselves. But we must move on, otherwise we won't even get to the whole reason that I chose this text to begin with. Uh, The second thing we want to consider from this text is that we should not just be careful um, with our influence on others, but we should be quick to extend forgiveness he moves on from uh, us being a cause of, uh, of stumbling for other people to, okay, how do we respond when people sin against us? You, you, don't either, you don't have to be in community for very long to realize, man, one thing I've noticed about either this marriage, this family, or this church, there's a bunch of sinners in here. Even if it's just like you and your spouse, there's a bunch of sinners in here. And what do sinners, well, do to one another? They sin. And how do we handle it when sinned against? It's not, it's not avoidable. Like the, the, the solution isn't I'm going to uh, isolate myself. I'm going to have like no friends except my Facebook friends. And if I don't like what they say, then I'll just block them and they won't even know it. They'll still show up as my friend, but it, you know, I won't have to see their annoying content. Like, no, that's not the way we, that's not the way we live real life. Real life was made to be lived in community with other people. And there's lots of reasons for it. One of them is the most un-American of them all. We need one another. As Americans, we don't like that. We'd like to say, I'm willing to submit. Like, no, you need one another. And the first thing, now this is, I think this is fascinating to get our perspective of life from these words from the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that he says in the context of people sinning against you, look at it in verse three. Pay attention to yourself. Wow, I think that's profound. Do you know what the first thing that we do when we're sinned against is? Yeah, but they, what does Jesus say? First thing, yeah, but you. He draws the attention. He gets on a self-centered way of drawing attention. He he says, quite literally, watch your own heart in this. I'm going to argue that maybe the easiest occasion for us to sin and to justify it in our minds is when we're sinned against. Because we recognize the thing that happened to us or was said to us or wasn't said to us or wasn't done to us or however we figure it out, the, the thing that did or didn't happen that was wrong and we're right there. And we know we're right there. 
And it's so easy for in our own minds to then use that to leverage our consciences into approving of a course of action, a set of words that we know deep down is not right. You can see this with spouses all the time. Yeah, but they, and they use that as an excuse for the sin that they're about to express. So the first thing that Jesus mentioned is watch out for yourself. If we would, I know this might not be the, the first thing or the foremost thing that we would think of with regards to handling when we're sinned against, watch your own heart. Watch your own heart in this. And when we're sinned against, it's so easy for our eyes to be just fixated on the one who has sinned against us. And it's so hard to actually focus on the way our hearts are responding. Notice what he says in verse 3, moving on. He says, if a brother sins, I love how quickly he he moves on from that. If a brother sins, rebuke him. That might not be the thing that we expected, but uh, it's where Jesus goes. So what happens when we are sinned against? Do away with all the excuse making. Do away with all the pointing of fingers. And watch out for the deadly disease of the yabuts. The yabuts is a terrible disease. Hard to shake chronic if if not treated rather than looking out at others and, and trying to explain things away considering my own heart in the matter doesn't discount what happened doesn't ignore it doesn't dismiss it doesn't explain it away the focus comes in on how am I going to respond now Jesus's um command in this and it is a command it is an imperative if your brother should sin against you and he will how do I respond to that? Well, the response is, well, rebuke him. And you might say, like, whoa, okay. Well, there's, and you, you, I'm sure you figured this out by now. Different preachers have different patterns in the way that they explain things. I'm sure that I could start a sentence that is common to Pastor Brian, and you could even finish it. I'm sure that even with me, you've gone like, ah, oddly enough, I feel like I know how this guy goes. I guess how many ditches there are. I use two ditches all the time. I don't know if you've noticed that. Maybe you haven't. Uh, there's two ditches with regards to the commander rebuke. The first is, I love rebuking. This is my life first. This gives me all the, the go-ahead and green light I need to just rip into people. If that's you, that's not what Jesus is saying. <laughs> Jesus is not saying, let loose the sharp tongue of truth around those uh, in your life, and maybe it'll beat them into submission. Like this one, what he's saying? The other one, this is the ditch I like. We all like them and different, and depending on what relationship, we drive from ditch to ditch. The second one is, I don't want to rebuke people at all. I'd rather die (laughs) than rebuke. In fact, uh, so we either like internalize it and it eats us alive. That's, that's one really delightful way to handle it. Or the other one is um, we give out all of these prayer requests to other people in our life. You know what I mean. And instead of talking to the one person that did it, 
so that they could repent, we talked to everyone else about it. And we, we have all the language to dress it up. Like, I was just sharing my heart in a gossiping fashion. Uh, we don't usually say that last part, but we, we, we either love rebuke, and I've had those friends, or we uh, hate it and shy away from it and just internalize it, or we talk to everyone else but that one person. Both of those are wrong. And I, and I, I get the temptation for, well, at least the one, and I can conceptually understand the other. Jesus' command, again, so simple and yet so profound. When someone sins against you, go to them and tell them. It is such a loving thing to do. It's so loving. You might say, how is rebuking loving? Well, uh, the psalm called it oil on the head, which in the context is actually like a good thing. Uh, You're giving the person an opportunity to repent. What a kind thing. Don't you, when you're blind to your own sin, want someone to correct? In your clear moments, I'm not talking in the heat of battle where like that vein here is sticking out. Not that, not then. In a clear, calm mind, if I'm running headlong into sin with someone else, I would want to know so that I could stop and seek to repair that damage before it was really, really bad. Well, when we rebuke viciously, we repay evil with evil. When we fail to rebuke, we're robbing that person of a chance to repent. That's a really sober thing, especially for for me to uh, get my mind and heart wrapped around, right? We're robbing them of a chance to make it right. And it, it's, it, it is not the way that Christians should conduct themselves. Uh, we are to rebuke them kindly, lovingly, yet clearly. And notice what Jesus says. And if he repents, forgive him. Again, the simplicity and yet just the profundity of the statement. Actually, forgiving the person who has just sinned against you. And before we get into all the, the bits and pieces of repenting and forgiving. And if he does it seven times in a day and repents, what does he say? You must forgive him. This is not easy Christian living, friends. This is like... Really, really difficult. And you're like, well, if he did it seven times, I would argue he never repent. Like, this is Jesus saying this. So we could try to explain it away. We could try to nuance why we are off the hook for repenting. But let's just take Jesus' words for what they are. We are to be swift to forgive. Quick to forgive. The other side of it is, if we are rebuked, and we see our sin. Now, don't repent if you're not in sin. I, I, don't, I don't think that that is a, a godly practice. To you're like you're, you're being falsely accused. And you're like, well, the only way to get him off my back is to uh, repent for the thing I didn't do. And like, no, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about real sin and real forgiveness and real repentance. So, uh, what are the elements of repentance? I think I've gone over these before, but they bear uh, repeating. When you go to a person and you are seeking their forgiveness, you've either realized it or they've brought it to your attention. There's three elements to seeking someone's forgiveness. First, there needs to be both the experience as well as the uh, admission 
of sorrow over sin. Just saying I'm sorry, that's usually where we stop. Saying I'm sorry, all that's doing is like admitting you have an emotional response. Not great. That doesn't say anything. My more sarcastic side wants to say in those moments, like, well, good for you. <laughs> that means nothing. But it's a part of it. Are we really repentant if there's no sorrow over sin? I would argue no. No, we're not. So should we acknowledge what I did was wrong and hurtful? I am sorry for what I've done. It was wrong. Yeah, that, yeah absolutely need that. There's that second element of confessing it was, it was sin. Don't rename it. You're not Adam in the garden with all the animals. You don't get to rename stuff. So uh, call it what it is. If you were sinfully angry, don't say, I was frustrated. Just say, I was sinfully angry. Don't say, I missed lunch. Okay, good for you. What bearing does that have? Like, well, I mean, but if you hadn't, no, that's excuse me. I was sinfully angry. And that was wrong. And then a asking for transactional forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? Those are really, really hard to hit all three of those. It's really, really hard as a dad when you're having to talk to your four-year-old. Daddy sinned against you. And then in the back, I'm like, because you're a mess and I stepped on that Lego. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Practice what you preach. So admit the sorrow over sin. Call sin by its name. Don't rename it. Don't excuse it. Ask for forgiveness. This is, these are basics. If, if, if these things could take root in marriages and families and church memberships, wow, the family life we'd have. But if you don't have these, and I hate to call them mechanisms, but I will. If you don't have this mechanism working in your family life or your marital life or your church life, Baggage and, and just garbage builds up over time. And it will poison every relationship you have. Usually the folks that we talk to in counseling, it's not over one huge breach or, or blow up. It's actually a failure to repent and forgive that builds up over time. Like eight of ten of, of instances are that. There's actually three promises with regards to forgiveness. So when you forgive someone, when you say those words, and don't say, it's okay. That is not the response to when someone says, I forgive you. Don't be like, it's fine. That's a slap in the face of someone who's trying to, uh, to repent. Say, I forgive you. And then knowing that, that, uh, that you're saying, I forgive you, what you're saying to them is, uh, I, I promise you three things. I won't bring it up punishingly or punitively against you. So in a future conflict, I'm not going to be like, well, remember when you, I guess I'm the only one who's ever struggled with that. Um, the other promise is I won't bring this up to others. So I'm not going to tell others, be like, yeah, I'm a big deal. I really forgave this person over here when they did this thing. Forgave them. Like, no, no, we don't do that either. The other is I won't bring it up to myself. And that's the hardest one. Because if you're anything like me, you love laying in bed at night watching replays. Or reruns. We used to call it when there was TV. And you couldn't just skip the, the advertisements or whatever. They would run reruns, old shows that you pretended were new. Uh, 
that's what we do in our minds. We, we replay the offense. We're like, oh, man, I was wronged. Oh, man, they were wicked. We watch those. So I've used the, the analogy before when we're sinned against. It's like getting shot with an arrow. When we pull it out, we put it on the wet stone of memory and we sharpen it. We keep it so that if ever you cross me again, I'll, I'll shoot you with that business. Forgiveness says, I break it. I will not use this against you ever again. Family life in verses 3 through 4 says forgiveness and repentance are how we function as a church family. Are we going to sin against each other? Yeah, sadly. Yep. Yes, we are. Are you going to sin in your marriage, in your, with your kids, with your grandkids, with your siblings, and in your church? Yeah, yeah, we do. The, the way in which we uh, address sin in our life is through repentance and through the grace of forgiveness. And what, uh, if you've been around or are chronically around a really forgiving person, aren't they wonderful they really, truly are a delight to be around. You get to be that to the people in your life if you would embrace the grace of repentance and forgiveness. Third thing we want to mention through this text tonight, you're like, wow, these are a whole bunch of winners. The third thing is, and I apparently didn't save my updated title, I just had the placeholder which says, round and round the mulberry tree. We'll just take it for what it is. Verse five, it's on, uh, it's on faith. So verse five, uh, the apostles said to him, Lord, increase our faith. Now you could see, now that might seem like it comes out of nowhere. You're like, man, these guys just say the weirdest stuff. Consider what Jesus just said. You're sinned against seven times a day. Forgive them. And if you really understood that, you might be like, I'm going to need some faith for that. I I think that's sort of the right response. Lord, to do that, to to watch my influence with people so that I don't cause them to stumble. And then when they sin against me, to be just lavishly forgiving, increase our faith. How how do we do that in any kind of faithful way? Now, the question seems uh, at, the, at the front like a really pious thing. In fact, one of the things, it, it kind of struck me, one of the things we pray with our uh, daughters who confess faith is uh, each night that, that Christ would grow their faith. I think it's a great prayer request. However, in this instance, based on Jesus' response, I can't help but wonder if they were meaning something slightly different. They say, increase our faith. Jesus said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could talk to this mulberry tree and chuck it into the water and it'd grow. And you might be like, what? Why is he planting things in the ocean? The idea is that of doing uh, a, an impossible thing. And while we could get distracted on how small is a mustard seed and what sort of, I've never seen a mulberry tree. Is it like a little, a little tree you keep in your house or a big, it doesn't matter. The idea is that of an impossible action. Notice he says, it's not the size of your faith. It's the genuineness of it, to to put it kind of one way. 
they thought, seeming from Jesus' response, that the answer to these things was found in them, their level of faith. And who's... I'm trying to find a way to ask this without giving away the answer. Whose eyes, or who are they looking at? I'll do that. I'll ask it that way. In the question, who are they looking at as far as the answer to their problems? They're looking at their faith, them. Who should they be looking at? Well, they should be looking at the object of their faith, Christ. Isn't that so often the ways in which we fail? We keep looking for these answers in us rather than eyes. And we would rather, and you might be like, well, why would I look at me? I'm terrible. I'm awful. I'm this. I'm this. What word did you just use at the beginning of all of those statements? I, 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 me, me. And you can see in Jesus' answer, if you would but realize the object to which even a faint little mustard seed faith clings, Christ himself, you would find there a full fountain for all that you need. Our eyes should be lifted off of some sense of self-sufficiency and placed on the Savior. Leon Morris says of this text, Jesus' answers, or answer turns them from the thought of a lesson more in faith to that of its genuineness. If there is real faith, then uh, the effects will then follow. It's not so much great faith in God that is required as faith in a great God. What a distinction. What you need to live the kind of life mentioned in verses 1 through 4 isn't so much a great faith in God, but faith in the great God who lavishly blesses his children. One person I, I... I don't know who this individual is. He was quoted by someone else. His name is Sandy uh, McLeod. He says, all, that is, all, all this is very well, but in analyzing and scrutinizing your own faith, there's a danger of neglecting the very object of that faith. Was your faith crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of your faith? I mean, it's a piercing question. Is it really, with regards to me living my life and driving it forward in ways that are uh, in keeping with verses 1 through 4, does it really come down to me and how great I am? No. It comes down to the faith that can be small, but in whose object is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, even with regards to forgiving other people, that little mustard seed faith that clinging to Christ realizes, how can I who've been forgiven as he's forgiven me withhold that forgiveness from someone else? How, how can I, the slave who's been forgiven the 10,000 talents, choke a fellow slave over 100 denarii? You see, it doesn't take like this massive amount of faith to do that. It just takes that little bit that is focused on the Savior. Fourth one, and this is where we get to the very, uh, I think, the beating heart of the whole text. Beware of pride. 
And that will ultimately be the thing that we've been considering throughout this whole section. Verse 7 might seem very unconnected. But if you consider in light of verses 1 through 6, you, you might see that it flows quite naturally from it. He says, will any of you who has, a, uh, the ESV says servant, the word he uses is slave. And it would probably be very easy for us to get totally distracted with like, oh, he uses slavery as an example. What a, what a terrible way to get distracted from what the real thing of what Jesus is, is trying to say here or is clearly saying. He's giving an analogy. If you have a slave or a servant who's plowing and keeping the sheep, and you say to him when he comes in from the field, he's done with the day's work, you as the master say to them, like, come, relax at once and recline at the table. Now, the point is, he's at, the thing he's driving at is, is that what is expected if you're a slave? That when you come home, the master's like, oh, wow. Now, maybe if your slave was a millennial, that is what they would expect. And sadly, I find myself in that grouping of people. But <laughs> you would think if, you're, if you have a millennial slave, he would want a participation award, even if the work was terrible and uh, would want to retire after the first few weeks on the job. However, uh, it doesn't matter if he's a millennial or he's not. The point is of a ridiculous nature. No master would say that to a slave who came in. He's a slave. Verse 8, would he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And then afterwards, you yeah, you would say that because he's, well, he's what? He's a servant. He's a slave. That's what's proper in that context. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Does he give him a trophy for what he did that? No, he doesn't. So then you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now, there's two extremes to this, right? The first would be the way that the, uh, well, what we've fictitiously or foolishly called the, the millennial response. Obviously, we get that's the wrong response. There's another extreme that we'll talk about in here in a minute. But you might say, like, are we really, are we really um, suspect to doing this? Or are, are we in danger of doing this? Our first knee-jerk re- reaction would be like, I wouldn't do that. But if you just maybe, this is where we'll meddle a little bit. Maybe consider the way we talk. Maybe consider the way we talk about other Christians. Maybe we consider and talk about Christians who don't believe as well as we do. Or go to as many church services as we do. Or you could, cre- you could easily create a list of reasons why we think that maybe there'd be cause for the master of the house to say to us when we get to heaven like, It's actually a really sneaky way. And I'd argue, brothers and sisters, it lies quietly in all of our hearts. It, 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 It does. I know it lies in mine. To think that because we were conservative, 
not just Baptist, but Reformed Baptist. Baptist that got better than a regular old Baptist. And we went to, and we could just start stacking those things up. And we could even say, Lord, look what I did for 40 years, for 80 years. For We could start stacking those things up. Notice the way that Jesus says, the response ought to be. Now, this is, this is the really humbling part. While we might not think we're the, the, the first element of one of the participation award, what does he say at verse 10? So you, and I think, I think there's something not even hidden, but just right there in the beginning of verse 10. When you've done, what's the next word? Oh, I got, you should get stuck right there at that word. Can any one of us say with a clear conscience that I could say on that day, Master, I did all that you said. I can't. I can't. He says, even if that's what you could say, all you've done is what was your duty. Even the way he says it, it's really, really powerful the way that he he says in the Greek, there's this, I, there's a, he uses this word for ought, which is a verb. You, we, we did the thing that was ought to you, owed to you. All that we did was that which was demanded and right and good and proper, and there would be no place for boasting. It's like if you're, you came home to your kids and you told them, like, you're in trouble if you don't do. I remember when I was a kid, Sometimes dad would leave and the cord of wood had better be stacked in the truck by the time he got home. When he did, you did not get a participation award. You did the thing that you were supposed to do. If you didn't do it, uh, there were other rewards or consequences, however you want to say them. Uh, That was the result. But isn't this just a real... Uh, killer to pride. We need to have the right view of ourselves and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the master. I'm not. He's the Lord. You're the slave. And our obedience to him, it's not spectacular. It's what we as redeemed slaves do. Now consider that in the context of verses 3 and 4. Part of what we're called to do is forgive each other. And the slave that won't forgive those in their life cannot say to the Lord on that day, I did what you told me to do. The slave who wasn't careful in the way they influenced other people can't say on the day of days, I did what you told me to do. The slave who kept pointing their finger back at the Lord and saying, I didn't have great enough faith to carry this out. I I kept looking at me. I kept trying to, I kept pulling on the bootstraps, but nothing happened. They can't say they did all that he said for them to do. Pride is going to be that thing, that selfish Uh, that self-focused, obsessed with self-pride that really clings to us, it will absolutely kill your obedience to your master. 
It really will. You cannot serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other or serve the one and hate the other. While Jesus was talking in that instance of of money or God, don't you have another master that vies for your life? This thing. Isn't that the master we listen to when we withhold forgiveness? I refuse to break the weapons because I might want to use them against the person. I refuse to be careful how I influence people. It's my life. I'll do what I want. I refuse to consider my utter dependency on Christ and look to my own talents, verses 5 and 6, for carrying on my Christian life. I'll, I'll try to do the Christian life based on me and my talents and my giftings and my upbringing and all that. We're slaves who need to look to the Lord and who have this perspective. I obey him in whatever he says. Whether that's forgiving or repenting. Whether that's influencing or being influenced. Whether that's living by faith or trying to uh, like, brow, like sweat on my brow, figure it, figure it out. We want to be able to say at the end of the day to the, to the master who bought us, we sought in all that we had and all that we were to obey you. Can't you just hear the humility in that? That's what should drive the Christian life. So whether you're a young person and just beginning this walk of faith that serves the master, learn to die to self really young. Or whether you're old in Christ or medium in Christ or wherever and however you are in your walk with the Lord, beware the really subtle and destructive influence of pride. It will keep you from forgiving those in your life. And it will destroy both those relationships as well as undermine the way that you serve the master who laid down his life for you. Be very suspicious of pride. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us a watchfulness over our own deceptive hearts. And we pray that you would Work humility in us. Father, we think way too much of ourselves. And we pray that you would work Christ-likeness in us. If we want to look for an example of humility, we need to look no further than him. We pray that you would impress these things on our hearts, Lord. Cause us to be a repenting and a forgiving people. Cause us to be slaves that are intent to do our master's will and not our own. Lord, please transform our hearts by your word. Please check our self-aggrandizing thoughts and realize that serving you and your kingdom is an honor far beyond anything we could ever deserve, let alone should we be proud of the way we conduct ourselves. We pray that on the great day, we'll have the joy of hearing, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into your master's rest. Please cause that to be the approval we long for, not our own. We ask this in our Savior's name, amen.
We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.